1: no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones and my guest today is Mark Adeley, author of Russia's War Against Ukraine, The Whole Story, published in August by Melbourne University Publishing. Note, this is the whole story. It's a short book written in the author's words by an outsider for outsiders and seeking to answer why Putin launched his full-scale invasion of Ukraine in the immediate, long, and very long terms. How did two so similar and so different nations emerge? How can outsiders separate national myths from true origin stories? Who started the war and how will it end? Mark Ederle is a Russianist who became a historian of the Soviet Empire, as he puts it, Largely due to his encounter with Ukraine and its history. Hansen Chair in History at the University of Melbourne, he was born and raised in southern Bavaria and educated at the universities of Erlangen, Tübingen, Moscow, and Chicago, where he did his doctoral research on Soviet World War II veterans under Sheila Fitzpatrick. Before the book we're discussing today, he published Soviet Veterans of the Second World War in 2008, Stalinist Society in 2011. The Soviet Union, A Short History in 2019, and Stalinism at War in 2021. Mark, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, a lot of books on the war have been published over the last six months. Um, I've interviewed quite a number of the the authors, and there's a lot more to come. Uh, As you've written yourself, some are good and some are, as you put it, problematic. What made you decide to join in? Well, well, let's hope I'm in the the first category of the good, <laughs> not the problematic. But yeah,
1: we we shall see. Well, when I when I started to write this book, of course, there weren't many books, right? There was nothing. Uh, there was a, an earlier book uh, explaining a very good book by Serhii Kelchik uh, on uh, the first invasion, right, the 2014 invasion, hmm. uh, which was first released as in it's it's within the um, uh, what everyone needs to know series. Um, and it, there's two editions of it, and I understand a third one is coming. Um, there were also some things in German, some very good ones. Um, but in English there wasn't so much. And uh, in many ways, that Fleur, I'm, I'm kind of, I think, uh, part of several or quite a large group of, uh, scholars who who reacted to this war by. Uh, writing about it Um, there was uh, an enormous amount of historical disinformation and misinformation out there there was a lot of shoddy history uh, in the public sphere and I felt that as a historian I had the duty to try to correct the record now I was of course not the only one and there's other historians out there um, uh, who have since uh, written about it I have mentioned Yekelchik. uh, Serhii Plohi has um, written a very good uh, history of this war, um, which in many ways fits together with mine uh, very well, because it's much more of a history of the war itself, while mine is really a, a prehistory of how we get to the war. And it fits together very well with Plohi, because I draw very extensively on uh, Plohi's work um, for my history of Ukraine. Um and of course historians weren't the only ones there were uh, there's quite a few pundits there's political scientists there's some very good journalistic accounts now so and that that uh is already a, a little historiography uh on, on in in itself um and a, a debate often between historians but also between historians and and non-historians uh about uh this history so that that will become its own subfield um but yes I, that that's I think what I would would say why so I I would say I didn't actually decide to join in because there was nothing to join in yet when I joined in
2: well I um it is a very interesting mixture actually because you you begin with um quite a as I say it's a short book but you begin with quite a detailed description of the battle for Kiev there's a there's quite a bit of medieval history there's a character study of putin's late life crisis the um you know the, the the macho man uh the aging macho man and a sort of comparative psychological his, historical psychological study of russia and ukraine what made you choose that mix not sure i chose that mix the mix chose me probably in
1: the process of writing the book so um as I said before, I think it's at its core, it's a prehistory of the 2022 invasion. Um I do go back all the way, as you point out, to the Middle Ages and Kievan Rus, and then um uh the the division essentially of the Kievan Rus into what becomes the Russian Empire, um the first the Muscovite and then uh, the Muscovite the Rus and then and then um the Russian empire and what, what later becomes Ukraine. Uh, But I do that largely in order to try to set the record straight. So I'm implicitly arguing with both uh, a version of the, of the Ukrainian national history, which uh, sees kind of a straight line more or less from Kiev to uh, today. And uh, likewise with the Russian, um, with the Russian national narrative, which uh, claims Kiev, uh, the Kievan Rus for itself, so that's why I'm going so far back. Um, the 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 main, I mean, where where I see the the division of, of kind of a modern Russia and the modern Ukraine uh, emerge is in the early 20th century, and in in particular in the Ukrainian and the Russian revolutions of 1917 and the following um, Wars of the Roman of succession. Um, and then uh, in the uh, once the two more recent national states of Russia and Ukraine are born in 1991, um, the divergence between the two and their their are quite uh, distinctly different trajectories since 1991 nevertheless i don't see any thing that made this war inevitable in 2022 so there's these big structural forces which drive the two nations apart um, but there's also a lot that continue to unite them family ties of course a, a shared history um, uh, related cultures languages which are mutually understandable a lot of bilingualism. Um, Russians went to to work in Ukraine, Ukrainians work in Russia, uh, economic ties, and so on and so on and so on. Um and uh the only real reason uh why Russia went to war in 2022 is Vladimir Putin. And that that's why I end up with trying to understand uh the the man um uh and his psychology so so that's i think the the overall way how that mix developed in a way in in a in an attempt to understand what what happened why it happened and in an attempt to also engage with some of the um the big misleading stories i encountered in the public sphere
2: yeah i was going to ask you on that specifically because it seems to me there are two things that you address in in a bit of detail repeatedly one is the the, the core, the immediate causes of the war, not not the historical, but the immediate causes, and also you address uh, several times the the notions of um, Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian society being dominated by Nazis and the far right. Did, did you feel you had to? Is that part of the political debate in Australia or? Is that something you felt you had to address particularly? Yeah, it's part. I mean,
1: it's part of the political debate worldwide, um, and I mean the political debate I uh, follow uh, includes both uh, the Russian and Ukrainian debates, um, the German debate, where you know I uh, still have uh, connections both um, personally and in, in scholarly terms. Um, I, I I hail from Germany originally um, and the American debate and the Australian debate and everywhere that notion um, that somehow uh, this was a fascist society and a fascist regime uh, was quite prominent, um, in particular to my puzzlement on the political left. Um, uh, so, yes, that that was something I felt needed to be um spelled out and um to some extent debunked but also explained what the historical background to these these um these claims are and the extent to which you know what what is the role of the far right in in today's uh um ukraine but also what's the role of uh the far right in um in the history of the 20th century in ukraine
2: yeah actually another myth you you address um, and it's a very good point actually. you you, you at the very beginning you talk about the, the the initial stages of the full-scale invasion and the fact that the battle for uh, this is a quote the battle for Kiev was won by Ukraine's own artillery and modernized Soviet era tanks and not NATO weaponry. And you make the point that these old tanks they're using, they're essentially used as, as mobile artillery. Um could could you expand on that point? I think it was a very interesting point.
1: Well, I think I i I felt this needed to be made because if you were if you um were uh following the reporting as well as much of what happened in, in social media at the time of the Battle of Kiev, uh, you would be uh uh you could be forgiven to thinking that somehow um uh NATO supplied weaponry in particular shoulder fired uh, anti-tank uh, weapons uh, were the major um contributor and i i felt that was actually that was i mean that was factually not not correct uh, although those pl- did play some role but um um it was it also was a bit self congratulatory from um NATO countries to uh, highlight these these weapons given that um essentially uh nato uh and the and the european countries in particular uh had failed to actually adequately um, equip uh ukraine for its own defense so i i did feel that this this point needed to be made um because there was a little bit too much um self congratulation on the uh on the on the side of of countries who had in fact not provided uh the lethal weapons uh required um, or requested uh by ukraine um on the because you know people felt that this would somehow provoke uh, russia and um so i think that was one of the reasons why i i felt that point needed to be uh, made quite explicitly
2: yeah, it, was a good, it was a good one. So well, anyway, get, get, getting into the real uh, meat of the book, you begin with a, a potted history of Ukraine, starting with what you call the chain of fortified outposts uh, linked to the Principality of Kiev and the Kievan Rus myth that grew out of this. Can you explain how this became so critical to the to the joint national mythologies, but in particular... Russian mythology and and the truth behind it
1: well I think the the point I'm trying to make is that there's no straight line you know from from medieval Kiev to uh, modern Moscow or Petersburg or Petrograd or Leningrad or uh you know Moscow today uh, but there's also no straight line from uh from um, medieval Kiev to modern Kiev, that is to the modern Ukrainian nation and the Ukrainian nation state. Um, the reason why uh, this um, I'm following the story so far back is because both sides um, uh, uh, claim medieval Kiev as uh, their um, their ancestor. And of course they are both right in a way that this is where, a um, East Slavic um, uh, culture took place uh but that of course also uh, includes uh, Belarus um but uh they're wrong insofar as there's no um no continuity of statehood uh between uh, the Kievan rus and either the the Muscovite state which then becomes the Russian Empire or um, the Uh, much later Ukrainian uh, state Um, so I think the the importance for the Russian side of that is to uh, lay claim uh, on Kiev also means laying claim on Ukraine right Mm -hmm. Um, if that is part of, of your prehistory, you are the continuation of uh, this, then of course the Kievan lands, the Ukrainian lands more generally are sort of part of your your heritage, and that's why uh, this has been defended so vigorously uh, on the side of uh, Russian nationalist historians ever since, and Russian imperial historians ever since uh, the 19th century.
2: There, there seems to be a, a linked myth, I mean it comes later, um, a, a Ukrainian national myth around uh that maybe was pushed by grishevsky's notion of a quote more european and more democratically minded east slavic people uh compared to the the, the brethren under the iron fist of the muscovite princes and later zars further east um is that as yes you seem critical of that is that was i right to read it that way
1: yes i mean i'm uh, a i do i do follow um um and I, I had some some uh, intense debates with some uh, medieval uh, historians um and m- early modern historians who not always uh who, who who sometimes see this a little bit differently but um the uh, you if we're talking about a ukrainian nation and a kind of a modern russian nation um they're really i mean the ukrainian nation in particular uh is a uh, 19th century and early 20th century phenomenon there are of course cultural differences between the regions we now think about ukraine uh and the people living there um but uh and they, they they Developed, they they delivered the kind of raw material for the nation builders uh, of the nineteenth and twentieth century. Um, but you know, this is a this is not a uh, very long history in 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 terms of you know a history of humanity, if you like, or history of certainly the Russian Empire uh, has a has a longer history. But more importantly, I have a real problem, a fundamental conceptual problem, I think, with the notion of a national character, which is somehow unchanging over uh, hundreds of years. Uh, it is true that the lands which are now Ukraine uh, have fundamentally different political and cultural influences uh, and uh, influences which are more uh, Western and Polish, um, but also indigenous Um, uh, democratic uh, traditions, but they're very discontinuous is the one thing, right? They they come and go in many ways. Um, But the other point is also that uh, this history did not make Ukrainians immune to the totalitarian temptations of the 20th century. Um, You know, as many other... uh, (laughs) peoples uh in 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 that in that time so uh i i feel um while i understand why you would construct such a history um and would highlight these uh these um uh democratic or um more participatory uh, aspects of your own history over others um that's not the whole
2: story, right? Yeah. Well, as for the the Hetmanates and the Cossacks, uh, as one of the outsiders you're writing for, it's never been entirely clear to me whether this is a this is a period of history or a a cultural. Uh, memory that, that ukrainians want to reclaim or should reclaim is is this in any way something to be proud of well
1: it's definitely something that is being reclaimed uh, and has been reclaimed for a very long time mean the, the uh the the cossack Hetmanat and and the whole cossack traditions are, are central to uh, the notion of what it is to be ukrainian now whether or not you should be proud of your ancestors is a uh, you know fundamentally a political question in in my mind you know you might be inspired by your ancestors or by part of what they did you might also be repelled by your ancestors and by part of what they did right Mm -hmm. um so uh i can i can uh see uh, very well that you would want to highlight for example the kind of participatory uh aspects of uh, the political structure of of uh, the the Cossacks, in particular Hetmanate, um, but you might be repelled by the anti-Polish and anti-Jewish violence uh, uh, which were committed uh, in the name of um, uh, these these groups as well. So I don't think it's very healthy to simply uh, say I embrace one part of that history and I don't. Don't talk about the other. It, it seems to me that a, a, a mature, uh, modern, democratic nation uh, needs to be able to do both. Um, but you know that's sometimes a big ask, and uh, this is something uh, my chosen country of Australia is is struggling with as well. So uh, it's not surprising that that that's not that's not perfectly straightforward.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: And are you, I mean, you identify um, the the moment where uh, Bolshevik troops were in Ukraine and heading for Kyiv and the Rada declared independence. You say, quote, this moment, not medieval Kyiv or the early modern Cossack state is the real origin of modern Ukraine as a nation state. Is that, um, is that moment as central to uh modern ukrainian culture and modern ukrainian national myth as you think it should be yeah maybe not although
1: it depends uh who you talk to in that case there is um among um liberal and democratic ukrainians and particularly historians of course there is quite a um quite some interest in in that period the reason why I it seems to me it is an absolutely essential period is that is the first time a modern Ukrainian state is created, not a Cossack state, um, not um, a medieval state, which is well, it wasn't a state actually, a medieval realm, or which is held largely together by uh, by kinship ties of the the, the ruling. Uh, class and um, religion, um, but a modern nation state um, comes into being and uh, def- tries to defend itself uh, um, against uh, the Bolshevik uh, threat, uh, which is very much seen as a Russian threat, um, and which also you can actually see a straight line in a way of from that. State that essentially failed state because it it gets um, it gets uh, divided between uh, the more successful successor states of the Romanov Empire, which are Poland on the one hand and um, Bolshevik Russia on the other. But um, the way this gets integrated, or uh, the 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 eastern part of um, Ukraine gets integrated into uh, the Soviet Union, is as uh the as a union republic um so ukraine uh maintains a kind of pseudo state formation it maintains borders um and it maintains uh, a notion that uh there should be a state for ukrainians and it is that state which essentially then uh breaks free of the soviet empire uh in in 1991 so Without understanding what happens uh, in 1917, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22 uh, to the lands that are Ukraine and to people who understand themselves as Ukrainians, um, you don't uh, understand how we get to uh, the uh, modern, um, uh, the modern Ukraine, the, the contemporary Ukrainian state. Um, what is, in terms of historical memory, what is Attractive about this original Ukrainian state is that it was decidedly Ukrainian, it was but it was also decidedly democratic um, in aspiration, um not in practice, of course. Um, and it was also multi-ethnic in aspiration. So in and all of these are uh historical precursors of uh today today's Ukraine. So I think one can there's there's a whole Range of arguments why one can can see that as the kind of formation of of modern uh, uh, Ukrainian statehood.
2: Yes, you you make that very interesting point about how Ukraine is now aspiring to a, a new form of civic nationalism, which I, I I guess borrows from largely from that period. Could could you expand on that point? Yes, yeah, so I
1: mean the 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 problem in 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 eastern europe for kind of a certain form of 19th and 20th century nation building uh, which is ethnic right is that there are no clear ethnic borders anywhere right this is i mean there are more there are more ethnic borders now in 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 a way uh, because of of uh, geno- genocide uh, ethnic cleansing and so on going on throughout uh, the well in, in 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 periods of the the 20th century and in particular I mean the 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 uh, Holocaust uh, instituted by the Germans is uh Central to the uh ukrainization if you if you like or the, the 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 diminishment of of um the uh Jewish um population and Jewish culture there but also then later um Uh, forced population movements of Germans out, uh, Poles out, Ukrainians from Poland in and so on, uh, make it actually more uh, consistently or somewhat more ethnically, less ethnically diverse diverse than it used to be. Um, But uh, nevertheless, if you think of nation building as something which is uh, focused on uh, an ethnic group, uh, it's an extremely exclusionary um, project, and if you are in a situation where you have a very mixed population, uh, which is what the normal state of Ukrainian um, society has been and continues to be, uh, then you have a problem. Um, and the problem is is that this will be will have to become exclusionary and very often violent. Um, the Ukrainian revolutionaries of 1917 saw that very clearly uh, and uh, dealt with that issue um, uh, up front. Uh, they did think that Ukraine was uh, this was a state of the peoples of Ukraine, right So it was uh, seen as a uh, inclusive and multi-ethnic nation, a multicultural nation. Um, There are, of course, moments when that flips, right? I mean, the the 1930s become one where uh, Ukrainian fascism becomes quite influential, for example. Um, And of course, also already during the Wars of Independence, uh, there are uh, instances of of anti-Jewish violence in particular. Um, But in terms of the political aspirations of the project of the Ukrainian state in 1917-18 was certainly um, uh, focused on a state and on a territory rather than on an ethnos. Um, And that is very strongly the case uh, today as well, uh, particularly institutionally. So if you're looking at, um, at the constitution, it's very clear that This is not uh, an exclusive uh, state of ethnic Ukrainians uh, which excludes uh, Poles, Jews, and in particular Russians, right? Uh, But rather an inclusive uh, um, nation which focuses on a particular territory and a particular state formation. So democratic Ukraine is uh, what is highlighted. Of course, this again, there are, of course, groups who challenge that. There are groups who want a more ethnically uh, Ukrainian uh, nation, but they're quite uh marginal uh in in contemporary Ukraine. Um and the war has not actually changed that. Um so and and you know, the 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 leader of this nation in war uh, is of course a, a Ukrainian Jew who grew up um speaking russian so that's yeah. an interesting part of that story
2: yes and you make, you make the point that he's the first president who was elected not on a regional basis
1: yes who managed to to uh to transcend that kind of division uh between well east, east and west if one one runs a very very basic division but uh, the more russian speaking and the more ukrainian speaking parts of the of the country um and and uh, that was clearly very important for um, the once the war broke out uh, as well, or once the, the full scale invasion of of um, Ukraine took place.
2: Well, well, we've talked so far about mostly about uh, Ukrainian not UK, Ukrainian national story. Um, you reserve most of your criticism for some of the big Russian national myths in, in this book um for example um and these are ones that have spread in the west uh, as you said at the beginning like for example russia's right to crimea the conflation of russian suffering in the second world war to uh soviet or, or ukrainian uh, suffering and above all as you put it quote that russia never had an empire it was one and this this is quite central to to the latter part of the book could you expand on those points
1: yes yeah, so to to begin with the last one the russia never had an empire it was one um that that makes kind of decolonization of of uh the dominant culture that is the coming to terms with the end of empire um very difficult uh because um the division between what is the metropole and what is the colony is not always very clear and very often it's very unclear and there's huge anxieties about about so that during the the chechen wars uh there were enormous anxieties about well if if we let chechnya go uh what's next who next will 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 leave will siberia leave will we completely you know will will only moscow region be left in the end because wh- where's the borders of this uh, of this empire. So in a land empire, which from very early on was both both multinational uh, and integrated um, uh, kind of non-Slavic uh, uh, lands, it's very difficult to uh, easily make the, you know, chop off the empire, if you like, um, uh, and, and leave, you know, leave France after the French empire disintegrates, or leave the UK, although the UK might be a difficult thing in itself, uh, but you can still, you know, have uh, the metropole there after the empire disappears, and even there, people struggle. You know, many people struggle with uh, um, the end of empire uh, many decades after. So, uh, so that point is, I think, really about. Um, one of the reasons why this is difficult in the Russian case, although not, not, not impossible um, to, um, to kind of construct a positive sense of post-imperial self, um, if you like. The other point is is really about driving home that Soviet history is not Russian history but Soviet history is the history of the Soviet empire, which half of the population, you know, plus minus, depending on which, which uh, period of that history was not Russian, but was other uh, groups. Um, but also the Russian empire is not just the history of Russia, but it's the history of the Russian empire, where, you know, the Russians become a smaller and smaller group um, it, relative to the rest of the population as the empire expands and integrates non-Russian uh, region. So this slippage between Russian empire and the Russian nation uh, and the slippage between Soviet and Russian uh, is something that's very widespread still. Um, it is. Uh, I, I do a lot of work with uh, high school teachers. Um, the, quote, Russian revolution is a central part of uh, the high school exams in history here. Um, and it is an utterly uh, russocentric story, as are many textbooks, as is a lot of the ways um, historians were trained at university, both in this country, in Germany uh, and in the United States um, until recently at least. so the the kind of predominance of a of a russocentric imperial Russian history uh is 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 very uh is still very strong and has some detrimental impact on understanding what is actually happening in this post-soviet space which is a post-imperial
2: space or
1: at least in part a post-imperial space uh today
2: well yes that leads to maybe conceptual difficulties for for a lot of us but as you make um as you make clear toward, toward towards the very end of the book um, it had a very specific impact on uh, on Putin himself and and on Ukraine because of it. You 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 cite how um, his weakness as a dictator, the impact of COVID, um, and his quote sense of history is deeply entangled with his sense of self uh, were really the drivers for the invasion. Could you could you talk us through that? Yeah. So this this partially. Um, draws
1: on earlier work I did on on Putin's view of history, which I found quite puzzling at the beginning and then uh, increasingly um, threatening um, as time went on. Putin is a Russian imperialist, um, as are many Russians, uh, and particularly many Russians who are interested in in history. Um, He... uh, has constructed a very unapologetically imperial history of of russia which um which is drawing in many ways on on kind of mainstream historiography in russia um, sort of on the right right end of the spectrum uh, politically uh, but mainstream um which essentially tells the entire history of the russian empire and then the soviet empire as the as the history of russia uh, and therefore, you know, lays claim on uh, the, the post soviet space as the as the heritage, as the rightful um, place to dominate uh, by Russia. So that's the one part of that argument. The other one, the more personal one, uh, which is about his uh, uh, his increasing isolation during COVID uh, and his obsession with history during these covid years, that's drawing very strongly on on the work of Mikhail Zigar, a Russian um uh, journalist. um his book uh, War and Punishment just came out. Uh, I haven't read it yet. I've what I drew on is his earlier work and some of his immediate uh, publications. He's a very well-connected um Russian journalist who, so uh, very vividly told that story of of Putin in isolation reading history books and being obsessed with it with with that history and with his place in it so he is and he's he's verbalized that several times to to historians he wants to know you know what his place will be in the history books um and uh, clearly, he was not convinced that he had a positive place in the history books, and he decided his positive place in the history books should be as, you know, the 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 man who took back Ukraine and therefore uh, essentially rebuilt the Russian Empire, uh, which had been lost from from uh, the perspective of, of Russian imperialists um, in 1991. So that's how the kind of the 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 putin um the Putin story and the um the, the driving role of that man in how we get to the start of this war uh, um made its way into this this book
2: Well, the inevitable final question for uh, anybody I talk to about this uh, about this war is how and when do you think it will end? <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. Asking. Uh I don't know. Is the is the short
1: uh um, uh the short answer um I in the final chapter of the book I outline a few scenarios uh which I think haven't changed yet one scenario is of course uh, a Russian victory That seemed very unlikely by the time I finished the manuscript, which was at the beginning of 2023. It seems even less likely now. Hmm. Um, The other one is an outright victory of Ukraine uh, pushing uh, Russia out. Um, That does not at the moment seem particularly likely uh, given the slow progress of the Uh, offensive, but it is only the start of August. So there's still a few months of the fighting season left. Um, But it looks more and more like at least large sectors of Ukrainian territory will remain occupied for quite some time. And then the question becomes, will that Will that mean it's a frozen conflict for a very long time? Will it become some sort of uh, Germany or Korea during the Cold War scenario with a division of the the country uh, along very hard lines? Um, Will, uh, what will the fallout be in in Russia itself? Uh, Will Putin uh, simply... uh, Uh, sit there and and continue on. So at the moment, there don't seem to be particularly um, good options uh, or very quick options uh, for this war to end. But uh, in in general, I think uh, studying the past is a bit easier because we have empirical evidence while studying the future, we have none. So um, much of this is uh, speculation.
2: Yeah. Well, uh to finish the podcast because this is a podcast about books. As usual I've asked my guest to choose two to recommend to listeners. So Mark, what have you chosen? Well, uh, you gave me actually a more detailed brief which is one from my
1: field and one not from my field. That's right. Um, so, uh the one from my field is Nicole Eaton, German blood, German blood, Slavic soil, which is a new book came out in 2023. It's a history of the Kaliningrad region or how Königsberg became Kaliningrad. Um, And that's, of course, a region which we might still want to pay some attention to because it is now a a Russian exclave in Eastern Europe, um, which quite possibly will see tensions uh, around it in the future as well. And the other one is totally different. It's from 1978. Uh, It's a novella uh, by Tim Krabbé. It's called The Rider, and it's about bicycle racing.
2: Okay. That's a a nice mix. Thank you. Um, So today I've been talking to Mark Adley about Russia's war against Ukraine, the whole story published by Melbourne University Publishing. Mark, thanks again for coming on.
1: And thank you for having me.